It's that time again. We're going to have another episode of Words and Work. I'm Ted Przelski. We're on the words side today with uh, Greg McNamee, who's a local writer and author. Um, there's some other parts of his uh, his job, too, that we'll talk a little bit about. Um, I grew up reading Mr. McNamee. Um, he... Uh, wrote for the Tucson Weekly back in my college days. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some other uh, projects of his. And uh, why don't we go ahead and get it started? Okay, uh, we've got uh, Greg uh, McNamee, uh, who uh, on his website, he's described as an author, journalist, editor, publisher, photographer, lecturer, traveler, and desert rat. Uh, you know, so he's a uh, definitively Tucsonan figure, I think. Um, so I want to get started with just how you came to be a writer. Uh, well, that's one of those uh, psychobiography questions, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I could never figure out how to do anything useful, I think, is probably the short answer to that question. But uh, the long answer is that when I was a kid, I was always making up stories, always reading stories, um, and uh, it just became a natural thing for me very early on to amuse myself. Um, four or five times a year, some years, and uh, uh, in that, uh, you know, you have to make your own movie, as Ken Kesey used to say, you have to entertain yourself, and I entertain myself with with stories. And that kind of led me into, uh, uh, you know, the, the standard riff of uh, the junior high school paper and the high school paper and, um, you know, studying useless liberal arts things and, and on to the present. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine what a, a high school newspaper article by you would, would be like. <laughs> uh, I, I, I will, I will never show you. <laughs> because they're <laughs> because they're uh, they're a touch embarrassing. I actually wrote for my high school was right outside of Washington D.C. I had an excellent education uh, with a very good journalism teacher who uh, interned when she was in college with I. F. Stone, and that name may mean meaningful to some readers or listeners. Um, and uh, she took us to meet Izzy Izzy Stone uh, when he was a very old guy, um, and uh, he regaled us with tales of, you know, this during the Vietnam era, and he regaled us with tales of exposing government malfeasance and uh, this, and that's quite inspiring. So, uh, but even so, I covered a kind of a culture beat, you know, co covered movies and music and concerts and, and that kind of stuff. One of uh, my colleagues on the paper went on to become a journalist at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and uh, he won a Pulitzer um, 30 years later. So, um, so he made good. You know, so, I mean, you talk about you, you, you grew up outside of Washington at, at a time when I think the, uh, the Senate and the house and stuff, they had these giants that strode the, the hallways there. I mean, did, I mean, did that have any effect on your interest in politics or anything like that? Oh, it did in a kind of a roundabout way, Ted. And, and you know, you know that all my stories are roundabout. Um, 
uh, and in this way, I, uh, when I was uh, 16, 17, 18, I worked in a bookstore um, off of the Beltway. And uh, a lot of the people that came in that were our customers were in government in one way or another. And a fellow that uh, haunted the science fiction racks was an editor at the Army Times. And, you know, he had hair down to his waist and a big Fu Manchu mustache and, you know, wore a field jacket and all that kind of stuff. The Army was uh, not uh, terribly picky about his appearance because he did a real good job. He introduced me to uh, a librarian at the Library of Congress whose job it was to do research for Everett Dirksen. Uh, back in the day when Dirksen was still uh, alive. And um, um, uh, uh, Paul Simon, I think, was just coming into Congress. And, and uh, you remember Paul Simon, right, yes. The uh, from Illinois? Yeah. Uh, he was just coming in, I think, as a representative back then. This would have been about 74. Um, and the researcher... Uh, uh, you know, every time Dirksen gave a speech or every time anybody gave a speech having to do with Lincoln, he was the Library of Congress Lincoln guy. And so, you know, and he was like down in the third story under tunnel of the, <laughs> of the library. And, you know, some, somebody had come down, you know, some, some little page would come down and, you know, sort of meekly ask for X, Y, or Z on the part of uh, the center. And, uh, and, and, and the researcher would uh, would go at it, and it was a wonderful thing to watch. It was a wonderful thing to watch the the library uh, inform politics in a way that I would be surprised if it did the same today. I mean, I would be very surprised to hear uh, that Jim Jordan had called for information from the third sub basement. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I think in general, I mean, even even just outside of the Library of Congress, I think reference librarians don't get enough of their due. Um, they do a lot of interesting work. I mean, my, I, I, there was a family friend who was the, one of the reference librarians over at, uh, at the U of A library. And, and uh, she had some great stories about stuff that people would ask for and things. And she was able to help almost all of them. So, you know. Yeah. We have uh, within the uh, Tucson Pima library system, we have, a, we have a thing called Info Line. And I think the number is still 7924010. Is that right? I believe I'd so. have to look that up now, make sure. But uh, it's just wonderful. You can call any time of, during business hours and ask just about any kind of question short of what is the meaning of life. And they will, you know, whoever is at the desk will go and find the answer for you. It's, it's really quite a wonderful thing. Yeah, I, I, and free. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I think with the internet now, people don't recognize how valuable that is because they can just go on Google and type something, and they don't realize that yeah, the first five things you get on Google are you know either paid ads or God knows what you know. <laughs> yeah, you're. A, I always uh, say of, of of research, you know, you're a freestyle surfer on the ocean of information, and all that you have to remember is that oceans are full of algal blooms and great plastic swirls and, you know, all kinds of other toxic things. And <laughs> it's all too easy to swallow them. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I think the thing that I am most familiar with, and I know your writing career is, you know, very broad, but the thing I'm most familiar with was your time at the Tucson Weekly. 
So could you talk a little bit about what brought you to the Tucson Weekly and, and what it means to work on one of those kinds of weekly publications? Uh, that's going way, way back into the mists of time. And I'm not exactly sure how I fell into the weekly, except that I had done some writing for um, its predecessor, which was the Tucson Weekly News. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had wound up through a series of the usual corporate catastrophes. I had wound up at the age of 24 as the the last editor of the Tucson Weekly News, um, which I liken to, you know, Dernitz taking over after Hitler committed suicide. It was not a pretty scene uh, by by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, when it went away and it had been pretty closely demonstrated that something like the Tucson Weekly News was needed, you know, that we weren't getting uh, certain kinds of coverage, particularly, uh, you know, all politics kind of stuff, and mostly left politics kinds of things, weren't coming out of the main uh, papers, of which we had two, of course, in those days. Um, so a paper came in in the interim called Coyote, and it was published, I believe, by the co-op uh, on Fourth Avenue. Oh, really? And the typesetter was a young man named Kevin Dahl uh, for that newspaper, someone whose name I'm sure is familiar to you now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, he and I became friendly right about that time. And through some connection that I think is kind of lost now, I wound up writing for the very first issue of the Tucson Weekly and wrote on and off for them for, oh, I think probably 10 years and, and did a little bit of everything at that, at, at, at that time. But that I have to say is now more than 20 years ago. So, yeah. well, I know, but I'm just saying <laughs> I've done lots of other stuff since. <laughs> yeah, that, no, no, that's how I first found you. Uh, you know, uh-huh. and, and actually I had, uh, I, I did a chat with Jim Ninsel, um, uh-huh. broadcast last week and he talked about how, um, you know, the, the, the feeling of going and working at, at the weekly as a young reporter and seeing bylines, like, you know, working with these people whose bylines he'd been seeing for years like you. And, um, so that was interesting to, to, you know, although if you think about it, you didn't. You weren't around that long before he started working there, because the weekly was still. I mean, it started in what eighty two, eighty three. I'm trying to remember now. Um, I'm gonna say late eighty three, um, but that again is that's you know that's going back nearly forty years. Um, just as a matter of constancy, I will say I believe the very first piece I wrote for the weekly was about Bob Dobbs, which will oh. show you that there are some institutions in this town that remain, you know, yeah. unchanged. <laughs> you go there and the same people were sitting there 40 years ago. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've noticed that. I, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's still not quite like the, uh, the buffet, but, uh, <laughs> so, you know, anyway, um, yeah. So, uh, there's, so I wanted to ask, talk to you about a couple of books you've written. Um, I, I, there's a book called um, Tortillas, Tiswin, and T-Bones. Yes. That I think came out about five years ago. Um, and that's um, 
sort of a survey of the history of Southwestern cuisine. And I, I, I think right now, kind of, I, I'm border food is having a moment right now. I mean, I'm not talking about Southwestern, because when people say Southwestern cuisine, there's a whole bunch of stuff larded onto that, pun intended. Um, but um, <laughs> but there's, a, there's a difference between, you know, like between that and, and sort of the border food that I grew up with at my Nana's house. And, and, and I, could you just talk a little bit about your book and, and, and uh, what you see going on with that sort of food right now? Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And certainly there is a difference between, you know, Sonoran cuisine, Tucson cuisine, border cuisine, Southwestern cuisine. There's, there's just all kinds of range there. And I don't know that there are really very um, specific markers for where one begins and ends. But to take you back to the beginning of that project, um, you may remember, I'm sure you remember SB 1070, which oh, was yes. promulgated. I so almost I was, into a, a street fight over that. So I'll tell you later. Well, I, I was doing, I, I, I continue to do a, a fair amount of public speaking. I was doing a lot of public speaking back then uh, on all kinds of things having to do with the history and culture of Arizona. And I wanted to impress upon audiences the feeling that I got when I moved here in 1975, when I moved to Tucson, it's a very different city then. It was a third of the people um, and, uh, and uh, quite a different feel. And one of the ways in which it felt different was that it seemed as if everybody partook of three cultures. No matter what home culture you were in, you could be Native, you could be Hispanic, you could be Anglo, but at some point or another during the course of each day, it seemed, you know, you were interacting with people of all those cultures and other cultures besides. And as the years went by, it seemed to me that there was less, there was more and more segregation, less and less interaction. So I wanted to talk about that in a way that never used such terms wanted to talk about how you become a true citizen of, of the Southwest, a true citizen of Tucson, uh, uh, by partaking of those three cultures and by giving them equal weight. And, and I thought, how, how do I do that without talking about that, without talking about immigration, without talking, talking about you know, racial profiling or you know, stop and frisk or any of those things? And I thought, I'll do it with food. Mm -hmm. Because you can use... The taco is, is the perfect metaphor. You know, the tacos we eat every day, the ingredients that make up a good taco come from all over the world and come from many different traditions. Um, and without the contributions of each of them, the taco would be a poorer thing and we would be poorer people for it. And so that was really the birth of that book. Was And, and so the book is... Um, quite political in that sense without being overtly political, without saying, you know, off the pig or anything like that, except in the most literal sense of Matanza, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, 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 but to talk about food as a way in which cultures come together um, and in which they've always come together um, in, in every part of the world. You know, that's, how we, that's how we become better human beings is to share our meals with other people. 
And so that was really the point of the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting, too, because you, you were saying, let's try not to make it political. But in a way, it kind of is because you're you're flying a flag for a certain, uh, you know, way of life and culture and saying this is something that that's here. You know, I mean, that was because I when I've when I was talking to my brother when he was writing his book on the the uh, uh, native California cavalry, it was in the back of his head was trying to declare that you know Hispanics have always been part of the United States, and you know, and because that was that was during that period as well. So yeah. I, you know, it's interesting because you know, but also I wonder too. I mean, does it? Um, are are those conversations so divorced from the political conversation that you know you would think it'd be a good way, a good in? Hey, you like Mexican food? Well, here's what you need to know about. Yeah, how yeah. Um, yeah. But then again, are we? Is, is is the conversation just so out of control that that doesn't work? Or well, I'm not sure. Uh, not having really overtly tried to raise it in that sense, but what I do say is that people in just, well, easily within my lifetime, Mm -hmm. um, in Washington, D.C., when I was growing up, uh, um, there was, I think there was one sort of Mexican restaurant out on Wilson Boulevard in Arlington, and the food was just awful, you know, it was kind of, it was, it was Velveeta and, uh, you know, and ketchup, basically, mm-hmm. uh, masquerading as, as Mexican. I, of course, it was called ponchos or something like that, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if you go to Washington, D.C., now, the little town in Virginia I grew up in, Annandale, um, uh, was a little town back then, is a, about a third Asian, a third um uh, Mexican, Guatemalan, uh, 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 Bolivian, you know, sort of mixed Central and South American, um, and, and a third Anglo anymore. And people of my age group, uh, some of my high school classmates, um, you know, without going out of their way specifically to be racist about it, kind of complain about the good old days. And I say, you know, well, yeah, but the good old days, you ate, you know, we had crappy, this one crappy Mexican restaurant. Mm-hmm. We had, you know, one terrible Chinese restaurant and a bunch of fast food joints. And now look at what we have. We have these fantastic regional Mexican and regional South American and all kinds of Asian food. You know, uh, uh, people fly in from South Korea as food tourists to come to Annandale to eat Korean food because it's a gourmet haven. I mean, it's, it's, you know, the world has changed. So in my lifetime, to try to tie this up in a, in a, in a little bit of a boat, our food tastes have changed to the extent that, you know, if you go to Montpelier, Vermont, or, you know, the border of Maine and New Brunswick, or wherever, wherever you go, you know, there's going to be Taco Tuesday. And People will say, we've been eating this all our lives. You know, this is this is native cuisine to us. Um, and that's just an example of, of cultural transmission that's so complete that nobody is aware of it. Um, and so I think that's kind of, you know, who doesn't like tacos? 
And, and, you know, and, and so maybe that's the opportunity to say, okay, well, you know, who doesn't like maybe some chapulines in, uh, you know, in Chile or. (laughs) I, I, I've, I've still only found one place in town that can make nopalitos that aren't disgusting, (laughs) (laughs) but um, you know, years ago, my, my family went to New York and my grandmother had come along and she wanted to make the, the, my dad's New York relatives wanted to make tamales for them. And this was mid seventies sometime. And they literally could not find a place that had the corn husks, huh. you know? Um, and they finally, somehow they finally found a place that just happened to have Mexican staff and they, and, and, and this arrangement was made. They had to, pull up into the alley to have these guys go out the back door. It was like some weird drug deal thing going on or something, but but you couldn't imagine that in New York now. I mean, it would be, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they have, you know, more Mexican restaurants than they can count just like any other city in this region of the country these days. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, if you were of a certain age, uh, uh, you know, uh, much younger than me, you will not know that there was a time in this country when you could not get a cup of good coffee anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was very hard. And I think it took uh, a lot of travelers in the 60s and 70s who went to places like Italy and France and tasted good coffee for the first time in their lives and came back and said, you know, damn it, where's our good coffee? Mm-hmm. And and ate a tomato for the first time that tasted like a tomato or, you know, a chicken that tasted like a chicken, you know, it didn't taste like chemicals. And I, I think out of that, this, this great foodie moment that you're talking about was born again, you know, 40 years ago. Now it's really taken for it to take full shape, but uh, um, we are much better informed and much more interested now about the things that we're eating. Um, and, and I think it's, this is all a very good thing. Um, so, and of course, we're in a position of privilege when we do that, because so many people, uh, you know, God love them, uh, uh, um, struggle for their food or don't have a choice sometimes. But uh, one of these days come the revolution, they'll get good coffee, too. Yeah, well, I will, there, you know, because I, I try to tap into both sides of my heritage. And so there was a, a Polish restaurant in town that's no longer around, but they had this bigosh, which is what they call hunter's stew, which is it's. I mean, it looks like you've had it because you're smiling. So, I mean, it's basically, I mean, it's it's basically peasant food. It's every part of the of the animal that we couldn't use. We're throwing it in here. Yeah. And and then I look at the menu and it was like nine fifty or something. I'm like, well, this, is, this is crazy that it's that much money to get you know food that poor people eat. You know. But uh, so, you know, in the in the minutes that we've got to wind things up here, I wanted to ask you about I know that you did uh, a travel guide to the Grand Canyon recently. Um, I think that got published, I think, before COVID. Um, yeah, that's the Fromer's Guide to Arizona and the Grand Canyon. And, and so it's the entire state. Uh, OK, well, yeah, one edition was uh, uh, published before COVID and this one will be coming the, the revision will be coming up very soon. All right. Um, the book, the book you might otherwise be thinking of is is uh, is my book called The Ancient Southwest, which is yeah. a guide to yeah guide the, to archaeological, archaeological sites. sites. Yeah. Yes. 
Um, yeah. I mean, do you worry though when you come up with a, a book like that that you're going to be enticing people to go to those places that maybe shouldn't be going? Uh, without meaning to seem flip, I say you vastly overestimate my influence. If you think, <laughs> <laughs> if you think my book is going to alter those faces, but it's a conversation, you know, uh, uh, not to be shameless, but uh, Ed Abbey and I back in the day used to talk about this quite a lot because with the publication of Desert Solitaire, um, you know, his perhaps best known book, 1968 is when it came out. Um, people started going to Arches National Park. Mm -hmm. And uh, my wife and I were going to escape Tucson for a week or so last month uh, when it seemed as if it was safe to do so. And we thought about going up to Moab and Arches and I called up there. Every hotel was booked up, every hotel was full. And the Super 8 up there was charging $275 for a room. Yeah, And I thought, no, we're not going there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so you know, I mean, so places can be ruined by literature. It is very, it is very true. But uh, um, no, I think this is the kind of book that my book is the kind of book that you most people have found in park bookstores and are there already, and use it as kind of a keepsake volume to uh, to take home. I hope. Yeah. So, so what are you working on right now? Oh, I'm sort of in between uh, about 30 different projects. Uh, and without meaning to seem too coy, I have to say, I, uh, I always regard it as a little, uh, a little bit of bad luck to talk about work in progress, <coughs> only because you can use up, you can tell all your stories. And then when you sit down to write, you're so bored with yourself that you can't stand to write them. Anymore. Yeah. So I say, write them first. And then tell him. Uh, you knew you knew Dick Tuck. Yeah. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Dick was the kind of guy who went out to lunch and dinner on his stories uh, every day. And I, I kept telling him, you know, Dick, you better, you know, at least talk these into a tape recorder and I'll write them down later. But, you know, you, you know, and now he's gone and all those stories are gone and he could have taken the time to, you know, to write them. <laughs> so see what happens. Yeah, I know. You've got to watch out. Well, thank you. Thank you for chatting. It's such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Greg, and thank all of you for listening. I'm recording this outro uh, on Saturday afternoon here in Tucson, so you might be hearing rain in the background. And uh, I am never going to be one that will complain about rain here in Tucson, Arizona, especially with the last couple of years of drought that we've been undergoing. But you might be hearing it, and uh, I need to explain myself. <laughs> so uh, National Writers Union Tucson Chapter is still looking at reopening our, our meetings to be uh, in person and open to the public. Uh, our, our plan right now is to have uh, Jefferson Carter, who uh, was a poetry professor at Pima College for a long time um, and, and also a very accomplished poem poet in his own right. Um, I don't know with the Delta variant uh, how those plans will go, but I will 
like to encourage you to visit our Facebook page and we will keep you up to date on uh, our in-person meetings or if we are continuing to do them virtually um, feel free to uh, check that out because we are going to be um, giving you instructions on how to sign in online uh, the other thing that uh, I want you to let you all know about is that uh, we're going to be uh, doing some fundraising here at Downtown Radio. I mean, we're always fundraising as a community radio station. But if you'd like to help us out with a few bucks here and there, if you go to our website at downtownradio.org, uh, there is a donate button on the first page and uh, I'd like to encourage you to click on that and give a little bit of money if you can uh, even if you're someone that's listening to this uh, as a podcast because uh, downtown radio is what enables me to uh, to do this show and uh, I guess it's a good time to remind you that this words and work is a presentation of downtown radio and of the national writers union tucson chapter i hope you all have a good week and those of you that are here in tucson i hope you enjoy the rain i'll see you next week